Um, sometimes I get to dive into a scripture uh, as I study it for preaching and a whole new world, a whole new way of understanding, a whole, how have I never seen this in scripture before opens up. Um, this has been that scripture for me in the last couple of weeks as I've prepared for this morning. It's a fascinating little story that growing up I heard is kind of uh, the, the hallmark of what evangelism was supposed to look like. Um, with a lot of white savior kind of complex, even though nobody in this story is white. Um, you know, you go to them, you preach to them, they confess of their sins, you baptize them, and then poof, you're gone. Maybe no one ever meant for it to be a bland kind of story, but I know that I never thought about the depth of these moments, about some of the humor, some of the irony, the depth of pain that could have been present, and what it tells us about what God says is important. Our story starts with Philip. Philip was one of those that we read about a few weeks ago that was chosen to take care of the poorer Christians earlier in Acts. Um, we talked about um, the widows of different groups that were complaining that they weren't being taken care of well. Uh, or maybe not complaining, but were, were letting people know that they weren't being taken care of in the same way. And, and a group was ordained to, to take care of those folks. Philip is one of those people. Uh, he was not one of the original disciples, but he is obviously a part of this faith community pretty early on. After the martyrdom of Stephen, um, he went to the city of Samaria, where he preached with a lot of success. Um, Simon Magnus uh, Magus was one of his converts. He afterwards was told by an angel of the Lord to go to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. So he's been having a success as a preacher and as an evangelist. People have been making huge decisions with their life, important people. There would have been crowds of people listening to him here. And it's at this moment in his ministry that God says, I want you to go just wander around the desert. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you why. Just go wander around the desert. There's something waiting there for you. This area that he's sent to is pretty desolate. Uh, remember that most of this land is desert anyway, but he's outside of civilization. The, the scripture actually adds in, this is wilderness. <laughs> it wants you to get the point that, that at this moment, Philip is taking a great act of faith and following what he feels like the Spirit is saying to him. Not many people would have been traveling this way. But here's where he sees a chariot coming and an exchange between him and the one described in the scripture as the Ethiopian eunuch begins. We'll, we'll get to that later on. But at the end of this story, Philip just disappears. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, this is one of the commentaries I read talked about. This is the first act of teleportation in, um, in Acts in the early church. He's found later, uh, he shows up later uh, at Azotus, uh, and then um, he passes through uh, preaching until he comes to, Samir, uh, to Caesarea, excuse me. So he leaves one place, just vanishes, shows up at another place, and still just keeps preaching. Um, some years afterwards, according to Acts 21, 8, and 9, he's described again as an evangelist. 
Um, this is a term that's, as much as we often talk about it in the church, it's not found uh, many times, many, not many people are called the evangelist or an evangelist in New Testament scripture. He entertained um, Paul, the apostle, and his companion on their way to Jerusalem. And at that time, he had four daughters, virgins, we're told, uh, who um, that were, um, who which did prophesy. That's what scripture says. Four daughters, which did prophesy. Philip lived a life of obedience to God, from serving food and taking care of widows, to preaching to large crowds, to raising daughters that were allowed and believed that they could and should prophesy. And as we think more about him, we have to think about how this act that God called him to shaped him. Philip is, let's rejoin our story. Philip is wandering around the desert and he sees this elaborate chariot. He goes up to it, walks alongside of it. We're not real sure, but we are told that the spirit tells him to go and approach the chariot. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, maybe he jogged alongside of it. I'm not sure how he heard uh, this man reading scripture, but um, I, I tried to picture it. I was thinking of him like running alongside of it. Uh, but he hears the man in the chariot reading Isaiah and a conversation ensues. It was the custom for men who worked for monarchs to be surgically altered. Most often, this procedure and this position wasn't something that they chose, but something that was chosen and that was done to them. Let that sink in. This is a person who has known great amounts of violence done to him. The point was to to excuse me. The point was to diminish the chances that they might attempt to establish a dynasty of their own. And so there was a class of men at this time who were highly educated, wealthy, and served in high-ranking positions who were in a really important way different. He's called an Ethiopian, but literally that just translates to burnt skin. I know that doesn't sound good, but that's that's it, it is more a mark of the color of his skin than where he's actually from. From the name of the queen that we're, we're given the title of here that he worked for, he, we assume that he is probably from the region of Nubia that would have been at the height of its wealth and powers at this time. Wealth and power that he would have been really close to, responsible for even, but because of his status, he would not have really been a part of that world, not have had access to any kind of privilege or even personhood. It's written that the queen could decide at any time to have her eunuchs dismissed or killed. This is the world in which he lived. Eunuchs didn't fit conventional, conventional notions of gender in the Roman world. They were simultaneously men and non-men, neither male nor female. Sexually impotent, they were powerless and and so they were often scorned according to Roman constructions of masculinity. This is important because Deuteronomy 23.1 says that no man who's been altered in this way, that's the more tame version. If you really want to read what that scripture says, go to it. 
no one who's been altered this way can be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. It's likely that when he went for this Jewish festival celebration that we are told he is coming from, he was not allowed to enter the temple completely or to fully participate in the festivities. We do not know if he knew that he wouldn't be able to participate fully before he came to Jerusalem. And maybe he did know, but we don't know what that felt like. What it felt like to to come all of this way from this place of power and to still feel like an outsider. We all know that feeling of being on the outside in some way. This man with his very being was always on the outside of gender norms that they then, as we do now, used to define and categorize everything. His body felt like a constant contradiction, and he is leaving Jerusalem where he's been reminded of that. He isn't given a name in this text, but in the Ethiopian Orthodox tradition (laughs) and the Christian movement that started at this same period of time as our story, he's remembered as Bachos, and that's what we'll call him today. Bachos is riding along in this fancy chariot, Uh, reading his expensive scroll. The fact that he has a scroll of Isaiah says a lot about the resources that he does have access to. Um, Or he could be having it read to him. It probably would have been common for him to have had at least a translator with him in the chariot as well. And then he stops and he talks to this guy who's wandering around the desert. He might have been alone with his driver, but there there could have been other servants with him, including a translator, uh, which would have expanded the size of his chariot. The Nubians were even known for their bow and arrow abilities. <laughs> they were known for being sharp shooters with an, uh, uh, in the head um, of their opponents with a bow and arrow. So it's also likely that there was somebody with him, at least one person that was with him, that would have been providing him protection and safety. Again, remember, we are in the wilderness, scripture said. So the fact that Philip can see all of this, see this elaborate Nubian chariot, possibly people who are there to protect him, and approaches it anyway, is again a testament to Philip's act of faith in this moment. And after they read and interpret scriptures together, Bachos knows something deep in his soul. What is to prevent him from being baptized? He asks, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. Nothing stands in the way between Bachos and the promise of God. And he knows it. He knows it in his bones that even though he may not be seen as whole at the temple, he is whole. Though he may not be seen as whole or even as a person in his home country, he is whole to God. And he's worthy. He claims that promise that God offers him right there on the spot. We know that the Christian church in this area of Africa is said to have started about the time of this story. And the tradition says this moment is the start of it. Still, a strong Christian presence is there in this area through this Ethiopian Orthodox Church. 
God is going out of God's way here to show the extent of who is invited. Think about that. God could have sent anyone to the farthest reaches. And that's that's what this area would have been known as. God could have even ignored the farthest reaches. God chooses a dark black person who is not a man, but also not not a man. A person who had no power on their own or, or even personhood to be the one who has an encounter with Jesus and shares that with the Nubian people. Preacher and author Nadia Boltz Weber has a great sermon on this text, and she says, What we don't know is if the Spirit also gave the eunuch a command to invite. Invite this nice Jewish boy, representative of all things that clings to the law and rejects you from God, God's house. Invite him to sit by you. Go, join, invite, and ask questions. Perhaps Philip, in his encounter with this gender transgressive foreigner, learned what seeking the Lord looks like. Many of you have heard that the temple is simply not big enough unless you change to fit in it. Change your sexuality, your personality, your doubting, change your addictive patterns, your story, your brokenness. And if you can't, then just pretend. Yet here you are converting me once again to this faith. This is Nadia speaking to her congregation. Because how can I know what it means to follow Christ unless I learn it from someone who has done so despite every obstacle possible? That's why I'm so in awe of those in our community who have heard again and again, there is no love for you here unless you let us change you into who we feel comfortable with you being. Also, those who have the wrong personality or the wrong socioeconomic status or the wrong gender or the wrong immigration status or the wrong politics to fit under the tent. All of these people who keep coming back to the faith, who keep pursuing God, who keep pursuing Jesus, have so much to teach us. The miracle of the bigness of God's tent is why we have an open community communion table, she says. When we come to the table, we all come as Christ's guests to his feast. As much as we'd like to be, we are not the makers of this guest list. We come to the table with those who accept us and those who reject us. We come to the table with those we love and those we distrust. We come whether or not we feel worthy because it is God who has made us worthy in this invitation. It is God who has torn the temple of the cur- the curtain of the temple so that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, gay nor straight, liberal nor conservative. So maybe here in this story of the conversion of Philip and the eunuch is some hope for the church that under God's really big tent, we might ask questions Invite those who represent the establishment to come and sit by us, to stay in the scriptures, to be converted anew by the stranger, and the stranger to see where there is water in the desert, to enter fully into the waters of God's mercy with the foreigners, with the not us. 
and to go on our way rejoicing, having converted each other to this beautiful, dangerous, expansive life of faith. This morning, I think it's also worth asking, how do you feel on the outside? Do you feel part of the church? I don't just mean mosaic. I mean part of the whole church movement, the whole Christian movement, part of the movement of God, but maybe not completely in it. Maybe you feel like there is not a place for you, a place for your questions and doubts, for your mistakes. Maybe you don't understand it all. And so you feel like you have one foot in and one foot out. Maybe you're on the outside of our society by the color of your skin or your gender. The truth of this story is that God goes out of the way to make the point that the kingdom is big enough for everyone. For those that the church has always thought of as outside, other. May we ask for forgiveness from God for all the ways that we've nitpicked scripture that props up prejudice that keeps certain people in and out, that pushes forward racism, homophobia, sexism. Even though God shows us again and again in those same collection of scriptures that the kingdom of God is for everyone, there is no reason that each person cannot be baptized. And this morning, that grace extends to you. Whatever you feel like is keeping you outside, God says that nothing keeps you from the baptismal waters. Nothing keeps you from the kingdom of God. Rest in that. God's love is big enough for those at the ends of the earth and is big enough for you too. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for a big tent. God, we pray that we would have your imagination when we look at the world. That we would be open to being converted. To thinking of new ways in which you're at work in the world. New understandings of scripture. God, thank you that you go out of your way in this story to show us just who's invited. Help us to be, um, to be reminded as we read this story, as we study this story, as we keep thinking about this, that you are calling us to the ends of the earth by just being faithful. But you're also changing us in the process too. God, thank you that... This life of faith is, is like a river. It is constantly moving. It is constantly journeying. There are smooth times and there are rougher times. There are twists and turns. This is not a little puddle that we're splashing in. <laughs> but this is something great and vast. God, forgive us for when we want to make it small. Help us to love our neighbor as you love them. We ask all this in your name. Amen.
This morning, we're going to finish uh, with a song of reflection. Um, this is one we've done a couple of times, and um, it is a, um, a take on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the blessed are the peacekeepers, blessed are the merciful. Um, and I pray that you would find um, your place in this song and in that scripture, um, and that you would be challenged to move to your own Ethiopian eunuch, to a place where God wants to show grace and mercy and wants to use you to to show that grace and mercy. So think on these things as you listen to the words of this song. Walk.